So you probably are aware by now that we use Anchor.fm here on this podcast for COVID-19 PPC. And I wanted to tell you about Anchor.fm because this is actually the second uh, podcast hosting software I've used. And um, I really like it. I love how easy it is to use. I love the fact that it's free. And they have so many tools here like music and all these different options that help you record and edit your podcast either from your phone or your PC or your computer. And then Anchor distributes your podcast for you so that it can be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And then also you can even make money from your podcast with minimum, with no minimum listenership. And it's all you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're new to podcasting and you're interested in um, getting started, I recommend Anchor.fm. So what you can do is download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to get started um, that's my recommendation. And, um, you know, after almost a year of podcasting, I'm really glad I found Anchor just recently. It just makes things so much easier. And, uh, yeah, come check out anchor.fm. Welcome to episode 21 of COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno. And today we're talking about another interdisciplinary aspect of COVID-19, we're speaking to Hannah Leibovitz, and she is going to be talking to us about social sustainability and how it relates to the pandemic, how we deal with the pandemic, and people's lives and livelihoods. So she shares her story about traveling for work. She was just given a new professorship, and she shares her experience traveling with children in a new city, and then the experience of a summer camp, as far as I know, is completely outdoors and hearing about the infection rate that happened at this camp that was required to shut down soon after they started the sessions there. And this is an example of what happens with children returning to group settings during this pandemic. Imagine this is an outdoor summer camp and people are getting sick. Imagine what it's going to be like inside of a classroom and what types of precautions would need to take place in order for kids to be able to safely be at school during this time, which makes pretty much no sense at the moment in terms of safety. And I'm looking right now today in the news as we look at travel from the United States or leaving the United States, being able to travel to other countries is very difficult right now. If you look at the travel.gov, travel.state.gov, Department of State website, we are at a level four global health advisory that says that we should not travel. Level four, do not travel. That is our current status right now. And if you were to travel, there are really only a handful of countries that would even welcome people from the United States for good reason. I don't blame them at all. And If I were a different country, I wouldn't want the United States in there at this time because of the fact that we cannot seem to contain the virus. We cannot seem to communicate the importance of this virus to the people in charge. We cannot seem to have supplies available for protective gear for our hospitals, and we cannot protect our vulnerable populations. So it makes complete sense that we are really not able to go to a lot of places right now. But it's quite shameful, to be honest. It's awful that we cannot travel and people do not want the United States 
in their countries right now. But again, it makes complete sense. So today we're talking to Hannah Lubavitz, and I really love the fact that she has a public administration background, just like I do. And we talked a little bit about policy and culture even, and what it looks like for children to return to school, what it looks like to start a new position in a new location, in academia, in education, and what social sustainability looks like. Welcome to COVID-19, Public Health, Policy, and Culture. I'm Dr. April Moreno, presenting information from various sources about the COVID-19 pandemic from public health, policy, and cultural perspectives. We will be sharing international accounts from policy, public health response, and even personal experiences firsthand about living in this era of COVID-19. Today, I wanted to tell you about our new organization. It is a 501c3 nonprofit organization in Southern California. It's called the Autoimmune Community Institute. We're dedicated to health equity in autoimmune disease research, policy, and support for the communities of color, the underrepresented communities out there that don't often see themselves in disease community events, for example, and they don't see their face, a face like theirs, in their community. And we are dedicated to community-based participatory research. We're dedicated to serving the community, for example, cooling programs, and also delivery services during the COVID-19 pandemic. For example, the immunocompromised community not being able to go out into public spaces due to disability or immunocompromised status from disease-modifying drugs. And we provide delivery services of essential goods, food, masks, protective gear, hand sanitizer, and so on to these communities. So please consider a donation to the Autoimmune Community Institute. You can find us at ACI, as in Autoimmune Community Institute, acicommunity.org. Hello, and thank you for joining us today at COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture. Today, we're going to be talking about the urban planning aspect, the sustainability aspect, and the social sustainability of dealing with this pandemic. So today we're speaking with Hannah Leibovitz. She is an incoming public administrative administration professor at the University of Texas, Arlington. Welcome, Hannah. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yay. Please tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, and, and then we'll go into this story, this situation with the pandemic. Sure, yeah, so um, I am an incoming assistant professor at the University of Texas at Arlington, and uh, my area of expertise is on social sustainability. So thinking about what human and community systems require in order to be sustainable over the long run, right? When we think about sustainability, we're not just thinking about um, systems, we're also thinking about time, right? There's like a temporal aspect there to it. So I think a lot about what do people, what do communities need that over time, they can be sustainable and they can continue to operate at a high level of satisfaction, quality of life, um, you know, these higher level ideals of democracy and equity and justice, right? That's a lot of what I think about. And so COVID-19 uh, has really obviously been a crisis of social sustainability. We know this from all of the research and, you know, we see um, 
disparate impacts in certain communities and certain spaces. So that's, you know, been very clear. Uh, and it's been interesting to watch as I transition as, into an assistant professor. I used to live in Cleveland, Ohio. It's where I got my graduate degree. And we only just moved to Dallas, Texas about a month and a half ago for my position, which starts this fall. And I mean, just like spatially moving across the country over time during a pandemic. It's like a social sustainability like project in and of itself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> figuring out how to move without your family to help you or without your neighbors or without your social network and your, you know, social capital is like its own thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, just on a personal level, right? So, um, so when we got here, when we got to Dallas, like almost immediately cases started rising. And when we had been in Cleveland and, you know, early on in the pandemic, there's a lot of conversation about density and about how places that were less dense kind of seemed like they were not going to be hit as hard. And then now I think as more research has come out and, you know, obviously I don't want to be, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I obviously can't say, you know, exactly what's going on, but just from what I've seen, it seems like there's more research coming out saying that it's not just about kind of the actual spatial elements of your community, it's also how the virus has moved, right? Like in the beginning, it wasn't in certain places or it wasn't hitting as hard in certain places. And, you know, then it moves and it's, and it's different things are happening at different times. People are being outside, people are inside. You know, there's just so, there are just so many factors here. But, um, you know, almost immediately when we got to Dallas, uh, numbers were rising, like tremendously. Texas is starting to go down a little bit. There's been like some points in time where, you know, maybe we peaked, but uh, if anyone's been following the news in the last month and a half, I mean, Texas has been wild with mm -hmm. COVID cases. Yeah. And so the second we got here, we decided to pretty much self-isolate for two weeks because um, we'd driven down from Cleveland and, you know, we'd stopped off at um, gas stations and, you know, it took us three days to get down. And even though we were sanitizing everything and wearing masks, you know, we just wanted to be safe. So we socially isolated pretty much for about two weeks, uh, which was also very weird when you first move somewhere, like making one big Walmart trip instead of going to Walmart 500 times the first two weeks you get there. It's like, oh, shoot, we don't have a second garbage can. Well, right. okay, we'll get it one day. <laughs> yeah. um, so it was weird. But then we put our kids into camp. Um, we put our kids into camp in the more suburban area, not in central Dallas. And we thought, uh, you know, we'll try it out, right? Like it'll be a test run for camp, for school. Um, we'll see what happens. And within two weeks, there were COVID cases and the camp had to shut down. And I really went back and forth thinking about how public I want to be about it because I think that there is, you know, it's really hard for parents right now for a lot of reasons. It's hard for everybody and I don't want to diminish that. But one of the things that's hard for parents is that obviously we don't want to put our kids at risk. We don't want to put other people's kids at risk. But there's like I mean, my kids were home for like four months. I mean, and now they're back home too. But like, it's very, very, very hard on parents and kids to be so stuck in a home in that way. It's not even like you're homeschooling. It's not even like, oh, it's the summer and there's no official schedule. It's like you can't go anywhere and you can't get anything done. And my husband and I have jobs. Um, and, you know, and I'm getting my research ready for my tenure track position and finishing up some other projects. And I've been contract, like, you know, I've done a lot of other work too. So, you know, we were really, really overwhelmed. And so we sent our kids and it was really a struggle for me to decide whether I wanted to share that or not about their camp shutting down. 
because I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be judged or I didn't want people to say like, well, how could you send in the first place? So, you know, the pandemic's not over, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's just, it's a really tough decision to make. It just mm-hmm. is like, there's no other way to put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but finally, a few days later, I decided to share it on Twitter and like immediately it went like semi-viral. I think it got almost like 80,000 likes or something. And people were messaging me and commenting left to right. Like we're parents too. This is exactly what we're dealing with. Thank you for sharing this. And then news outlets actually contacted me also very similarly, like they couldn't find people who are willing to go on the record or, you know, didn't have stories of what's going on. I think it's important that we share these stories. And I think it's important we think about the fact that, like, I don't know how this is going to work. Like, we haven't set up systems for our kids to be able to go back to school safely because we haven't eradicated this virus. Like that's the only way it can work. We can have kids, my kids were getting temperature checked every day. Um, you know, all the kids in the camp were getting temperature checked every day. Parents weren't allowed inside. Contactless drop off and pick up, um, you know, wearing masks. Kids were like in their own kind of pods by age group. They didn't interact with each other. Uh, materials weren't shared. You know, every single thing that people are talking about with schools. But it's like, that's not the entirety of, of any kid's life, right? Even their nine to three camp or school, they're going back home. Mm-hmm. They're spending a lot of time at home. Their siblings are spending a lot of time in their own networks, right? And so everything's just kind of moving. There's too many moving parts. And if you haven't eradicated the virus, it's going to come back. Mm-hmm. And it's going to come back to the places where people, you know, um, congregate for eight hours a day, mm-hmm. breathing on each other constantly, and then going back into their own bubbles. It's going to, it's just going to keep happening. And even though we sort of knew, you know, it's like, again, like I said, it's just a tough choice to make, but um, it was really striking to us just how quickly it happened. And it was like, you know, one kid had it and then two counselors had it and then another kid had it. And then it was like, boom, we're closed. Like our camp is closed. We can't do this anymore. And I would not be surprised if that's how schools go. Um, I also wouldn't be surprised if schools don't close, but there are COVID cases, which also frightens me because then there's a lack of transparency there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, they're sort of making decisions based on, you know, kind of arbitrary understandings that they have of the virus, which mm-hmm. is what everybody has right now. Like if a school says we'll only close if 10% of our kids are tested positive, but like, that's scary. Like what we know about this virus is that it spreads very rapidly and it can be very terrifying. And like, I wouldn't want to wait till there's 50 kids or a hundred kids or 150 or 3000 kids who are sick before the school closes. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, all of this is just really obviously showing that in my opinion, that we're not ready for this. We aren't ready to get kids back in schools, even though parents so desperately need it, kids so desperately need it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I think about this from my social sustainability lens, like it's just so obvious that the country hasn't prioritized social sustainability. They haven't prioritized what families, what kids, what communities need right now. We're prioritizing economic sustainability. We're thinking about businesses, which aren't people. Um, although to some degree our country thinks they are, (laughs) but we think about businesses and we're thinking about getting people back to work and getting money moving, but we're not thinking about getting people moving and getting families stabilized in the ways that they need them, right? Like people, raising children requires an actual village, like from a social sustainability perspective, your child won't do well in the future if they don't have social networks and social capital, if they, if they don't have the ability to access resources, if they can't live in quality housing, if they're constantly sick, right? Like these are things your child just won't do well in the future. We know this about kids and they're, even with their resiliency, there are, you know, Um, childhood experiences, adverse childhood experiences that affect them. There are social determinants of health, right? When we center the person, we see these things. Mm -hmm. But I think right now in our country, 
when it comes to COVID, everything has been centered on the economy. Everything has been, which is like a very weird thing that people can't really determine or understand. I mean, even though economists think that they can, sorry, economists. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but, you know, I think we've been so focused on getting money moving, getting people back into jobs, because we think that that's like their identity and their security, mm -hmm. but actually people are humans, we're social beings, and we need all of these other social support systems that we don't have. Mm -hmm. I mean, outside of the fact that we've been li literally living isolated for months, which is like also destroying our social sustainability mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just like, I just keep coming back to this. I keep seeing it over and over again. And unfortunately I'm seeing it at the detriment, obviously of myself and my children, but of massive amounts of like communities, right? Mm -hmm. School is huge for kids. You know, for like basically 10 years, for, I'm sorry, for basically 15 years of a child's life, school is their everything, Yeah. right? That's like their central spot in so many ways. Teachers can have massive impact on children, sometimes even more than parents, right? Schools are social systems, their educational systems, their economic systems, their everything. Mm -hmm. And having kids out of these for so long, and I mean, I'm a highly educated parent. My husband is a highly educated parent. And we're like, how are we teaching our six-year-old to read? Mm -hmm. um, like, how, how can we do this? Um, and so, you know, I think it's just, it's a huge crisis that our country's facing right now. I don't think we're applying the correct lens to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a couple of questions for you. I'm really sure. curious about your children's experience. So, of course, you know, they're new to this environment. They've just moved here. So it's really Maybe. important for them to find friendships. So I can see why they would want to go somewhere to summer camp, especially it's all outdoors, yeah. you, you would assume, right? Yeah, yeah, and they were almost, they were outside almost the whole day. They loved it. They literally, they were up at 7.30 every morning with their backpacks already on. Aww. Like, let's go to camp. They camped and start till nine. Aww. Yeah, and that says a lot already. Just the fact that in an outdoor setting, we're talking about summer camp, where it yeah. was still happening in terms of infection rates and people were still, susceptible to the virus imagine being inside of an enclosed building every single day for school it just it would never be the yeah. same it would be even yeah worse. and i think there's also there's also kind of a um a class issue there too right where um you know the camp that my kids were in was predominantly like suburban kids and so a kid kind of came down with a fever and the mom went and got them tested for covid she has insurance um, you know, she was really familiar with the process and the kid tested positive. I don't know how the kid is right now. I've heard from the camp director that the kid seems to be fine, but another parent might have ignored it or might have said, I can't afford a test or might have said, I can't afford to put my kid, you know, think about a sick kid right now mm -hmm. or, you know, and so that kid could go walking around with COVID and potentially infect a bunch of other, other kids, but also potentially keep the school open because people aren't testing, right? Like I think about some of our some of our more urban public schools and you know how that's going to how that's going to disparately impact so many people because there isn't a system in place that's going to manage this mm -hmm. um there there aren't going to be you know practices that are established to let's say test every child once a month or something like that there aren't going to be these health practices established and so it's going to be up to parents who we know for good reason, overwhelmingly, like, you know, do not trust health systems mm -hmm. and, you know, have a lot of really, really very valid uh, structural concerns. Mm -hmm. And those folks are going to end up being more negatively impacted than, let's say, the suburban mom who is very familiar with, you know, her healthcare system and is okay, is able to stay home with her child 
or, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so these really common health issues that we see all the time in urban public schools are even going to be further exacerbated mm -hmm. with how little we know about COVID, with the distrust that so many families have of healthcare systems, with the ina inaccessibility of healthcare systems. Um, and, you know, just again, that whole system that it takes to take care of a child, to take care of a family, to take care of oneself, you know, COVID is just highlighting all of the gaps. Mm -hmm. And we haven't resolved them. So how can we open schools if we haven't resolved these gaps? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely important questions. Yes, as you mentioned, it's like an SES, social economic status issue, where people who don't have time to take their kids out of school to get tested in the first place, or even to have them home because they need to be at work as essential workers or whatever type of work they're doing, if it's in a factory and so on. But then also it's this question of who's actually getting tested. Is it like you actually have to show symptoms before being yeah. able to go and get tested? I mean, as a parent, I could, I don't have kids, but imagine that if someone is demonstrating symptoms that maybe I would want to get them tested. But if they don't have symptoms, why would I take time off work to go and get them tested? And then there's also, also the kids question. get sick all the time, right? Yeah. So like my kids get, my kids used to come home with colds and fevers constantly. And it's like, okay, another virus. Mm -hmm. So then how are you going to decide, like, is this a regular virus or is this COVID? Like, mm -hmm. is this something really dangerous or is it something where I can say, okay, you know, take some children's Motrin and like get back running. Mm -hmm. um, it's really, it's a very hard decision to make as a parent. Yeah. And then also like the temperature checks, like that's great and all, like if you do have a high temperature, but there are different cases of COVID where you don't display a temperature change in the body. So yeah. there's so much there that's kind of hidden. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get into questions of like, to what degree should the state be able to tell you or be able to mandate like what um, practices you should do, medical practices you should do at home, right? Like can your public school tell you, you have to get tested every month in order to stay in school? Um, you know, there, there are just all of these questions about this, and I, it, it's opening such a black box into, I think, the American healthcare system as well, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, something that we don't have exact models for and that we don't have predictive mechanisms mm -hmm. for is really, like, destroying a lot of folks, and it's, it's very, we're very unfamiliar. We're not very medically uh, or healthcare literate in this country, mm -hmm. um, most people, and not just, you know, that's not just a socioeconomic or a class or race-based issue. Most of us, like healthcare is a black box, insurance is a black box. Like I don't understand 90% of the things that I'm supposedly handed when I go to sign off on something. Mm -hmm. um, most of us don't, most of us like just can't. There are so many burdens within the system that are keeping us from fully understanding how it works. Mm -hmm. And so this is just going to be another one, right? And this is so clearly something we can't account for. Mm -hmm. And we don't have like as a parent, so much of what I do and the decisions I make are not just based on, you know, best practices, which I try to do, but, I, but parents kind of like have a gut, right? Like you kind of have this sense of like, mm, no, I'm not going to do that. Or like, oh, you know, or to whatever degree that you can, right? Like obviously many of us are very highly constrained, so we can't necessarily make those good decisions for our kids or the decisions we'd like to make for our kids. Mm -hmm. But really often there's just stuff that comes up and you're like, my kid's kind of off. Like my kid's mm -hmm. just off. I don't think they should go to school or like, oh, I think that other kid is off. I don't think they should play together. You just kind of have these senses. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing about COVID is that it's so brand new and there's, there's so little clear information about it that I can't even like get a sense of how I feel, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. like when we sent our kids to camp, 
we were thinking, okay, even if they get it, let's say, right, like a lot, it seems like a lot of the data is indicating that kids aren't high risk and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then when the camp did shut down and when there were cases, I was like, oh my God, but what if like my kid is the 0.0001% of children that, um, in which, you know, it is fatal. Um, a five-year-old actually just died in Dallas from COVID mm -hmm. about a week ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's just like super frightening. And it's, you know, th there's just, there isn't an understanding of like, you know, the lines that we can cross or, or the, the ways in which we can decide how risky we want to be about our kids or about our own health, because we don't have clear information about it. I mean, I think about like a strep outbreak. If there was a strep outbreak in my kid's school, there are kind of certain things, there are certain practices that I would engage in to try to restrict the likelihood that my child would get sick and then to deal with it if my child did. And I'd be able to identify if my child was sick, you know, there's just like, you get that sense. Mm -hmm. um, but you, we don't have that with COVID at all. And so that's incredibly frightening, just in and of itself, feeling like you have no idea if you're making a good decision. Right. With the constantly changing guidelines and information, when you think that, you know, things are okay to reopen again, we're opening businesses again. And then you find out two weeks later, oh, maybe that really was not a good idea. So I see what, I see your point. I see where you're coming from in terms of, you know, allowing your kids to go to a camp or, you know, individuals allowing their kids to go to a school because in that city, in that location, the leadership said that it was safe to do. So I can understand this, you know, conflicting information that's out there and how it confuses us. And like, I mean, we just don't know. Nobody totally. knows. <laughs> and it's like when something is closed, you don't even consider it, right? But then once it opens, and you know, how long is it going to be? I think in a lot of places, this is already occurring, but how long is it going to be until like on mass, the country is like, well, your kid might get sick on COVID, but we don't really care. You got to get back to work anyway. So put your kid in school and move on. Right. And so um, that's going to happen. Uh -huh. Yeah. And then what's going to happen to us where it's like, okay, but we're literally putting our children at risk for this. Like, we're putting ourselves at risk for this. Um, we're putting the entire system that we're engaging in at risk for this. Um, it's frightening. And so it's just, it's very, very obvious that this has, you know, been mishandled on so many different levels, but also that it's just not a priority. Like kids and families just aren't a priority right now. I wouldn't say that any individual is a priority in this system. I think money is a priority. Yes. But I think that it's so obvious that kids are not the priority right now. Families getting back to their sustainability, to their stability is not a priority. Mm -hmm. um, and then what do you, how, how can you combat that? You know, like there's just no way. If I'm not a priority, if my kids aren't a priority, then they're going to be messed up. There's mm -hmm. <laughs> like no question. Right. Um, yes. And so I, yeah, so I think that there's just, there's so many layers of dysfunction here and how it's playing out so, within social systems is just yeah. frightening. There's so much here that we will be able to analyze for the next decades to come. My goodness. <laughs> so like, for example, we've, we've never even seen what a fully functioning health system looks like. We, we have no frame of reference really? in this country. We Nothing. Nothing. We have no frame of reference what a health system based on social determinants of health looks like either, right? Like we have no frame of reference of what a system that actually says, oh, how you live and where you live and the stress that you live with you know, how that impacts your health. We don't even have a system like that. Mm -hmm. And so even when we think about COVID, we're thinking about, you know, all the numbers of like, you know, COVID cases or things like that, they've always been like people who test positive for this virus, right? Mm -hmm. But what about people that are 
being heavily impacted in their mental and physical health because of the virus, but not because they're positive for the virus. Mm -hmm. So we're not thinking about that as well because our healthcare system isn't set up like that. Our healthcare system is set up to say, here's a book that outlines what all the diseases are, mm -hmm. what you can test for when you know these symptoms show up, mm -hmm. what you can bill for when you try to cure these systems and th these symptoms, and that's it. Right. And so we're not thinking about how people are living. We don't think about how, what people eat. We don't think about the jobs people have. We don't think about the stress. We don't think about their environments. We don't think about any of that when we think about their health. I mean, I think there's a push to start doing that, but our healthcare system does not do that. Um, our insurance system does not do that. So, you know, now we have this massive pandemic, which has like created so much upheaval in people's lives. And it is by, you know, in any, in every sense of the word, it's a public health emergency, it is. but it's not just a public health emergency when people test positive. It's a public health emergency because we've mismanaged a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good point. <laughs> My goodness. Um, how, in your opinion, from a policy perspective, can we translate this information so that it does reach the people in charge so that we can communicate the value of human sustainability, social sustainability to those who value the economy? Is there any policy suggestion, any idea? I mean, it's hard because, you know, there's like um, in the sustainability world, right there for a long time. And I think there still are people who believe this. There is this idea of like a triple bottom line, right? Mm -hmm. That we could, we could maximize environmental sustainability, economic sustainability, and social sustainability. We could do all three. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really obvious that we can't. Um, I think it's very obvious that there's no way to manage the tensions between the three of them mm -hmm. in a way that ensures that they are all that they're all the priority. Um, I think we see, you know, this country especially is so dedicated to the idea of development and overdevelopment, like so heavily dedicated to property, property ownership, property value. So environmental degradation is just, it's going to happen because we don't value environmental preservation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like we have to teach people to value environmental preservation. Um, economic sustainability is very strong in this country, right? Where, and that's what people love to talk about when you talk about how great this country is, right? They love to talk about economic growth, mm -hmm. GDP, um, which are all numbers that are very difficult to actually translate into what a person experiences um, or what a person has in terms of their own wealth or access to capital. Mm -hmm. But we love to talk about economic act activity and, you know, the idea of an American dream and the idea of small businesses. And like, you know, we love to talk about these as driving forces in this country. So economic sustainability is very easily prioritized. And it's a lens that, you know, it's almost universally adopted by any politician or any leader, right? Jobs, 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 um, you know, getting the economy moving, um, you know, regardless of party or whatever it is, right? People are always talking about this. But social sustainability is really a lens in and of itself, and it doesn't match onto environmental or economic sustainability perfectly. It, it you know, is interwoven between them. Environmental justice is a big social sustainability problem, um, or injustice, rather. But social sustainability is a completely different centering of our priorities, right? We're centering our priorities on humans and on community systems and on social life and the preservation of that social life and not on an economy or not on a natural environment. Um, and even though there are exchanges between those, that those aren't the center. And it's one of the most easily disregarded uh, you know, framings and lenses, in my opinion, and most social sustainability scholars would say this, because we just sort of tend to assume that people are going to be around and that people are going to make it work and they're going to figure it out. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, we just kind of, you know, the environment, like, you know, we're stewards of the environment. We sort of need to take care of that, right? The economy is man-made in many ways. And so we kind of need to take care of that. But people will figure it out. People will be fine. Um, you know, people will live at whatever level they can live, or people will maintain whatever social systems they can maintain, and they'll just, they'll work it out. Like, we don't need the government to take care of them. I mean, I think that's the mindset in this country, right? We don't need the government to take care of them. We don't need to ensure that housing is a right. Like, if you can get a house, you can get a house. And if you can't, we can't. Like, you know, that's sort of how our country sees things. And so if we're not prioritizing that, if we don't come with that lens, it's always going to be secondary or tertiary or even just not considered at all. Um, and, and I think that's really obvious. I think COVID-19 has made that so clear, sadly, um, that that's not, social sustainability is not the focus of this country. Um, it's not even a lens that we think about in a secondary or tertiary mode. We don't even think about, I mean, look at, look at you know, how, how reluctant the country is to support people in unemployment. Look at how many people don't want to go back to jobs because they're finally, like, they finally have a living wage um, because of the, you know, additional unemployment income that they've been able to, to gain, right? Like, I mean, there's, there are so many social systems that have become so obviously, it's so obvious that their gaps, that these gaps exist and that they're so broken, uh, but we're still not addressing them. We're just completely ignoring them. We're gaslighting people. We're making people think that they're fine and that everything will be fine, but it's not true. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just very obvious. And I think that a recentering, it's really hard for, to get politicians and leaders to recenter because I think that they are so driven by, you know, sound bites and platforms and, you know, their existing networks and the frames that they've already adopted. I, you know, it's almost like they're too far gone. But I think communities are naturally in touch with social sustainability, right? Like that's how community occurs because people are like, hey, nobody's taking care of us. Let's take care of each other. We have to sort of figure this out together. And so I think a bottom-up approach, um, which is unfortunate because, you know, the top has so much power and so many resources, but I think a bottom-up approach is really necessary. I think you see this in some communities, um, especially minority communities, uh, economic minority and, and racial minority communities, where folks are, um, folks are just doing things on their own. They're educating their own people. They're encouraging their own systems. They're creating their own PPE and sending it around to people. You know, they're doing this on their own because they're not getting help from leadership. Mm -hmm. And their, and their um, history of not trusting leadership or of knowing that leadership isn't going to speak up for them helps them to be able to do that. But then you have all these folks who used to be taken care of by leadership who aren't now. Mm -hmm. And so they're left like, oh, man, what do we do? Right? Like, uh, what do we do about our schools and our systems and, you know, all these things that we had in place that we always took for granted, that we always thought the government was going to take care of us and that we were going to be fine, but now they're not. And I think that's really going to be a defining um, shift in the next few years and perhaps in this election, I don't know. But it's definitely going to be a shift is that people, I think, are going to start to realize that, you know, you have to create your own community. You have to focus on your own social sustainability and on the social sustainability of that community because people, the government's not going to take care of you. Your leaders aren't going to take care of you. Institutions aren't going to take care of you. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So I think that is, that answers my last question, but if you have more information to share with us, please do. What information, what would you like the world to know during this time? Wow, that's a big one. <laughs> um, I think I'd like the world to know that pretty much what's happened right now is, was preventable, right? I think that's important. I think it's important that we not see 
this as being inevitable, that we understand that institutions have power, um, that leaders have power, and that a lot of what we're seeing right now is preve was preventable uh, if we would have followed what other countries were doing, if we would have taken an approach that said, you know, every single person in this country, stop what you're doing, stay home, we will take care of you, and let's just eradicate this. If we would have taken that approach from the onset, um, we would have a completely different result. Uh, if we would have centered social sustainability, if we would have centered individuals and seen this as a threat to human life and our collective humanity, this would have been entirely preventable. Uh, but that's sort of, I think, a, like a tough thing to leave people on because it's sort of like, hey, this didn't have to happen. Cool. Bye. Um, <laughs> it's not very like future and action focused. Um, I, I think that, you know, the biggest takeaway, in my opinion here is that, and I think we see this so, so clearly from, you know, the police, uh, police concerns and Black Lives Matter movement and just, you know, general kind of unrest, right, is that um, the gaps were there. The gaps were, try, you know, folks were trying to speak to the gaps. Uh, they were being, they weren't being listened to. They were being entirely ignored and marginalized. Um, but the folks now who are in this mid-space who understand the gaps but who still have power, I, I hope they'll step up. Mm -hmm. Right. I hope that the people who um, who are, you know, in that middle space where they're saying, hey, this is really messed up and I'm incredibly vulnerable as a person, as a member of a community. This has made it very clear to me that like, you know, the you know, I, I moved to this nice suburb to go to a good public school, but my school's actually shut down because of the same mismanagement that has led to urban public schools being failing. Uh, failing and like maybe this whole system is kind of messed up maybe you know I opted in because of my privilege my relative privilege whether it be you know race or class or whatever I was able to opt into a system that would benefit me but now I'm realizing that when those systems break down I'm just as like just mm -hmm. as messed up as the person over there um, and maybe these institutions aren't taking care of me and they aren't going to work for me, just like they haven't worked for this other group that I've kind of ignored a little bit because I've been more privileged than them. But I hope that folks will realize that and will become stronger allies to communities that have historically experienced this, to communities who have been saying for years and years, for decades, right, that this is happening to us and there are too many gaps and that we can't just you know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, or we can't just somehow manage all of these crises when they're, when they're clearly due to mismanagement. Um, you can't put it on the individual to manage the mismanagement of institutions. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that really would be what I would want to leave people off with, right, is that if you're in that group who is only just now realizing where the gaps are, if you're in that group that is only just now realizing that you know, this has messed you up, just like it's messed up so many others, you know, become an ally with a group that's already recognized that for a long time, and, you know, try to help them and, and, and use your privilege to support and to empower those groups, um, because they're ultimately helping you, because they already have so many years of activism and of, you know, grassroots organizing, and they have so many years of trying to do this and trying to speak to this, that, you know, help provide more of a platform for them and support them and empower them, uh, but learn from them uh, and listen to them and, you know, be willing to take a step back and realize you too are very vulnerable. Perhaps your race or perhaps your, perhaps your socioeconomic status protected you from some of those, but it's not now, right? Because the pandemic is, has significantly disparate impacts on minority communities, but it also will impact you and has impacted you. And 
So start to think about what that's going to look like and how you're going to become an ally to those groups who have been, you know, experiencing a version of this for decades. Thank you. How can we get in contact with you? How can we learn more about your work in social media, for example? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, my Twitter is probably the easiest way to contact me because I'm very online. <laughs> um, so that's at Hannah Leibovitz, H-A-N-N-A-H-L-E-B-O-V-I-T-S. Um, my DMs are open. Uh, people can feel free to at me. Um, that's probably one of the easiest ways to contact me. I also have a website, www.hannahleibovitz.com. Uh, and you can check me out there too. Contact me through there. I'm really open. Um, I love to talk to people. I, it just depends on how much time I have, right? Like when I get hundreds and hundreds of comments, sometimes it's a little hard to manage those. Mm -hmm. um, but I generally love to speak to people and love to talk about this topic, especially. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I learned a lot and I'm sure Yay! our listeners have learned a lot and um, I appreciate your time with us today. Awesome. This was so fun. you enjoyed this episode if you have any questions any burning questions about COVID-19 feel free to send me a message in anchor anchor.fm slash COVID-19 PPC is our website and until next time stay well and take good care out there